The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. It's the Velvet's Edge Podcast with Kelly Henderson. Okay, Megan Devine. I love that last name, Devine. Thank you. It's very Thank fancy you. of you. It is very fancy. It's very <laughs> fancy of the um, immigration officials when my great-grandparents emigrated from Ireland. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> they must have really thought highly of your great-grandparents. I guess. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, you are a psychotherapist and author. Um, the book is called It's Okay to Not Be Okay. And I was just telling you, I really feel like our society comes into grief in a place of like, we don't want to deal. And so, um, you know, I've done a lot of my own personal work where I've been taught to really try to walk through the pain to get to the other side. And I think that's been so important for my personal healing. And I was just researching a lot on your Instagram and that seems to be in line with sort of what you think, but I want to start with basics and then kind of work through, work our way up through that. So people can understand the importance of working through grief and all of those things. So, um, can you, is there like a basic definition for grief that you could even give? I was thinking Mm. through this. Yeah. I mean, that, any, any definition is going to be too small and reductive, right? Yeah. Because it's like, what's a definition of love, mm. right? Because grief is part of love, right? Whether we're talking about um, grieving the death of somebody or a divorce or a separation, or honestly, like grief from losing a job or a way of life or a physical body function, like grief is the set of emotions that you experience when you lose someone or something that means something to you. Mm. Right. And again, like that's me reaching for a definition and, and, you know, it's, it's, I I think that correlation there of like, let's define love. Well, what kind of love do you mean? Do you mean romantic? Do you mean familial? Do you mean like, I love a good burrito? Like, what do you mean? And, and uh, uh, again, it's like grief, Grief is part of the human condition. It, it hurts to be alive, mm. right? And I, I think this is the big 
the big starting point here is that um, grief is a normal human emotion. It happens all the time in big ways and small ways. And as individuals and as a wider culture, we don't deal with that very well, right? Why? Both. Why? Why is the big million dollar, yes, I mean, billion dollar really? question? Yeah. So longer, long answers and short answers here. So there's a long history of avoiding grief, right? And by long history, I mean, we're talking back not just 50 years, but we're talking centuries. And if, if you think about it, right? So let's center, let's center on loss related to death here for a minute, because it, it, makes, it makes this make more sense. Losing someone you love, someone you love dies, they disappear, they're no longer there. That has a really, that sets off a really big series of emotions and it's really uncomfortable, right? But rather than fully let in the reality that every single person you love or being you love will die, that is really hard knowledge to sit with. And so the sort of equal and opposite reaction there is like, I don't want to feel this big feeling. So how can I manage it? How can I control it? How can I shut it down? How can I um, pretend that everything is okay in order to manage the unpredictable, uncontrollable nature of life? Life is unpredictable and uncontrollable. You can do everything right and your baby still dies. You can eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, drink enough water and still get diagnosed with terminal cancer when you're 21 right? Life is not under our control. And that is a very hard thing to acknowledge, to let in. It is much easier in air quotes here. Y'all can't see me do air quotes, but it's much easier to say bad things will not happen if I do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And if something bad happens anyway, I can control my feelings so that that sadness and that grief will not consume me, right? We are way more afraid of grief than we are of death, which is a sort of weird thing to say. But if you think about it, you can sort of, in an abstract analytical sense, you can understand like, okay, I will die eventually. Let me do my advanced, uh, advanced directives and my end of life planning and all of those things so that I can like get those ducks in a row. Fine. You can be sort of analytical about that. But if you switch that and you look at your best friend or your sister and you say, they could die anytime. That is a much harder reality to get in. And, and humans will literally do anything to keep from feeling that future absence, right? Mm. It, it really sort of sets up this um, sort of one false move world where you, you have to work really hard to, um, to not get the short end of the stick, right? Like bad things won't happen to me if I do all of these things correctly. And this need to reduce grief to this five simple steps or seven stages, or um, you should be back to happy within six weeks, or there's something mm -hmm. wrong with you. Like it's all this way to control that existential anxiety of your feelings being bigger than you, honestly. When you just were talking about, we can handle the idea of death over grief. That made so much sense to me simply because there have been times in my life when the grief is so immense that I feel like I'm dying, but I'm alive. <laughs> and you yeah. almost are like, I just wish I was dead because this mm -hmm. is so 
encompassing. It is so overwhelming. I don't want to feel these things. And since I've gone through such a bad period of that before, I find myself now, I'm relating the death equation to relationships for me. It's like, I need to do all of these things and be hyper alert, hyper aware. So this relationship doesn't end. And I feel that pain again, because I'm like, I can't go through that again, you know? So do you see people just constantly trying to sidestep pain? Absolutely. Right. And internalizing the, the, um, I guess the mechanism of action there, right? Like just what you described. So in relationships, let me make sure that I've done all of my self-work. Let me make sure that my boundaries Uh are really clear. Let me make sure that I'm communicating. Let me make sure that I'm looking for every potential yellow or red flag in this new, like fucking relentless. It's exhausting. Self-examination to make sure that you are quote unquote doing it right. Yeah. So that you get the right person, which has the end result of, I never have to lose someone I care about again. Mm. Right. Like what an exhausting way of greeting the world. It's exhausting. And again, that whole like pass fail, do it right. And you won't ever be in pain again, do it wrong. And you're screwed. Like, hello. How about the breadth of human experience is actually between those two poles. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think this is all in the framing of, of what pain is, right. What grief is, it is not a punishment for doing it wrong. Right. Sometimes relationships end. I uh, I had a, a a partner once say, you know, our relationship has been really successful. Just because it only lasted three months doesn't mean it wasn't successful, right? So this like reframing of what what does success mean in love? What does success mean in relatedness? What does success mean if we want to bring this back into to end of life, death, dying, that sort of thing? Like, what does success look like for a terminal diagnosis like cancer? right? Success doesn't always mean you beat that cancer and you live. Sometimes it means I met this period of my life with grace and with compassion for myself, with a deepening of the relationships that surround me, right? If we are not looking to the erasure of all pain as our success metric, we can start looking at the things that actually make life better, which is better relationships, better connections, better advocacy for ourselves and for others. Like if you stop trying to ward off all pain, you get to have life, which is kind of cool. Um, as I'm listening to that though, I'm like, but how do you get past the fear? Because if the pain is so great, why would we ever want to sign up for that again? Yeah, it's a super good question, right? And really, really valid. So again, like we're talking relationships, but we're also talking death, right? Right. If you think about like, um, you know, you have a, an, an intense experience of loss where your, you know, your brother died or your mom died or your partner died, knowing what that experience is like, it's really tempting to say, I never want to get close to anyone right. again because it's not worth it. And honestly- that's valid. That's valid. I'm never going to tell you, you know, suck it up and don't do that because every response that you make in your own grief, as long as you're not harming others is valid, right? We, we rush in and say like, no, 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 love is worth it. All of these things. And honestly, side note, it is worth it. We'll get there in a second, but I want to get into this practice of not rushing yourself out of your, of your pain impulse to say, I never want this again right? 
if you silence that part of you too quickly, it's just going to keep popping up in places. So we want to acknowledge that that is a really valid response to intense pain, to not want it again. One of the things that my team and I have been talking about a lot is we're, we're noticing a theme for on like social media comments, uh, comments about the It's Okay book or the Writing Your Grief course or, or any of those things where people are saying, I don't feel brave enough to do this yet. I don't feel brave enough to read this book yet. I don't feel ready or strong enough to write about my grief. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me of this, this phrase that I hear a lot and have heard a lot for, for a long time now is, um, I'm afraid if I start crying, I'll never be able to stop. Mm-hmm. Right? There is this sense of emotions will consume me. Mm-hmm. And the really unfortunate part of that is that um, we, f- how do I want to say this? It's sort of a chicken or chicken or the egg type situation here, because the ways that we have historically culturally dealt with big emotions like grief um, is to clean them up, put them behind you. Don't look so sad, put on a happy face, behave as normal, get back to life. All of these things that we, that we've been trained, we're supposed to do when we're sad. I think that a really big foundational part of us knows you can't treat sadness like that. You can't treat grief like that. It will not comply. Right. So it makes sense when you, when you start edging towards real feeling, there's some part of your mind that says we have no tools for this shit. Like there is nothing except for the gaping yawning void. If I enter this, right. So it sort of makes us double back on like, Nope, grief is a problem. Not going to feel it. Not going to do anything that might set it off. I will love no one. I will do nothing. Right. Mm. This is why it's so important to one, talk about the reality of grief, which is the reality of love. And two, talk about what we really need inside those big emotions, which is not solutions for how to get out of those emotions or erase those emotions, but how do you survive inside them? What are the tools that you need, right? What are the tools that you need in there? Yeah. I mean, this, I feel like this is sort of the foundation of all of my work, right? Like what tools do you need in the abyss? Mm -hmm. Most of our cultural responses, clinical, medical responses, entertainment, storyline responses to grief are get out of that shit faster. And for me, the real question here is what do you do when you're in it? Right. We have to be able to um, combat, combat the idea that you have to get out of it quickly. It's like, I am going to feel these big things. I am going to feel consumed by it. It is overwhelming what do I do? Right. In the book, I talk about the difference between pain and suffering, mm-hmm. right? What you and I are talking about right now is, is pain. Pain just is, it will be there no matter what, right? Like losing someone you love is hard and it hurts. Just true. Mm-hmm. Suffering is all of the stuff we put on top of ourselves and that others put on top of us in top of that pain. Like all of that questioning that you were talking about with like, uh, shit, like I didn't pick the right person. I didn't might do my own self work. I wasn't clear. I did this. I missed this sign. Like that is suffering. right? Mm. And that's what sort of like twists you into knots and makes it really, really difficult to find your bearings inside the core pain of that reality, which is something that meant something to me left. The relationship that I had is not the relationship I thought I had. And that hurts, Mm -hmm. right? 
finding ways to name the pain itself and then support yourself inside that pain is a very different process than trying to be a sleuth for sadness or a sleuth for flaws <laughs> in what you did to cause this or what the other person did to cause this, right? It's that really different. So, that's so good because to me, I think a way I try to find my way out of pain is to do exactly that. Like if I just investigate and I figure this out, you know, I figure out exactly what happened or, I mean, it could be anything. It could be job related, all of these things, you know, I think there can be grief in a lot of different places in our lives, but if I can figure it out, get the right answer, read enough books. I mean, I will, you know, I'll just read the shit out of everything around me. Mm -hmm. um, Then I can get out of this and avoid it in the future. Like it won't last as long and I won't go through it again. And it's just not happening. It's not happening. And it, it's not that self-reflection and learning is not helpful. It Mm -hmm. is super helpful, but let's look at why you're doing it. Right. If you are doing it to stop feeling what you're feeling and avoid all pain forever in the future, it's not that it's right or wrong. It's that it's ineffective. Right. Right. Those are not effective approaches to grief. It's not, it's not really respectful to your own self either. Right. So I think one great question is when you're, when you're finding yourself in that sort of ah, inside your own, inside your own mind is to like, stop, take a beat and ask yourself, like, you know, some, some really good questions here might be things like, oh, I'm doing that thing where I'm in pain of some kind and I jump to where did I fail and how can I avoid this later? Mm. What would feel useful or supportive to the way that I'm feeling right now, right? That sounds a little bit therapist speak, but there's good reason for that. It's because it's helpful, right? You're interrupting that self-flagellation cycle, which is just a way to avoid pain but the pain is there. So let's actually name what's going on in that situation is, oh, I'm doing that thing, doing that thing. And that means that tells me that I'm actually feeling grief or I'm feeling pain or I'm feeling sadness, right? Name your own situation back to yourself. I am feeling this. Okay. What would feel supportive in this moment, given that this is how I'm feeling? My guess is when you ask yourself that question and give yourself a second to respond, you're going to answer yourself and it's not going to be go do some research, right? Right. Just interrupting that habitual pain avoidance self-flagellation is going to be amazing. Yeah. But let's go back to, you know, I, I write books. So I don't want people to stop going to books for support and resources. <laughs> Plus there's okay, so fair, many good fair, books fair. out there. Right. So true, many good true, books true. out there. But let's look at let's look at the equation in your head there like you can ask yourself like so one of my one of my friends and colleagues Kate Kenfield who's a relationship and communication educator has this great question. She says, "Do you need a solution or do you need support right now?" And I usually talk about that with like, as a support person, you can ask your friend, your family member, you know, when you're listening to them talk about their feelings to ask, like, do you need solutions and problem solving right now? Or do you just Mm -hmm. need to vent this shit? Mm -hmm. You can ask yourself that question too. Is this a time where I really need to make a decision and therefore I need some help figuring out what the next steps are, or do I need space to just let this suck right now? Mm -hmm. Do I need support around my emotions 
or do I need to go into sort of logic and analysis and find some specific tools to help me do X, Y, and Z, right? It's like, no, what results are you looking for? And let's like use the tools that will get you there. Knowing that it's really tempting to say, I will find exactly the right tools so that I stop feeling this and will never feel it again in the future. That is not going to happen. So let's just name that. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier the stages of grief and mm. you said, you know, a lot of times I think that is how people talk about grief is like you have these stages and it can easily get very mapped out, right? Like you go through one, then you go through the next one, you go through the next. In my experience, uh, I had a mentor describe it one time as a corkscrew. Like you're not going to just go through anger one day and then never go through anger. Like it's not linear grief. It's, it's a corkscrew and it's just kind of this constant rotation each day can vary and you kind of don't really know. It's kind of unpredictable. Um, can you talk through the stages of grief and maybe how people experience those differently, how it's not so cut and dry so that we can't map it out or plan it out kind of like what we're talking about? Yes. So first there are no stages of grief. Okay. We'll, we'll do a little bit. <laughs> tell us more because what? This is like the sacred cow that shall not be slaughtered. Okay. Right. So here's, here's the thing. Everybody knows, this, knows the stages of grief. So one that like that, that points to an excellent marketing campaign because everybody knows the stages of grief, right? Even if they can't remember where they first learned them, they are everywhere. So the stages of grief were created in the sixties by uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and she created them actually in response to what she saw with her patients who had just received a terminal diagnosis. Mm. So originally those five things, not stages yet, those five things um, were feelings and experiences that somebody who had just received a terminal diagnosis might experience. They were really common things. She never meant them to be linear. She never meant them to be required. And she never actually applied them to grief. She applied them to dying. Wow. There's one one thing, right? Like poof, mind blown. We don't know these things. Literally. Yeah. So what happened though, earlier you and I were talking about um, you know, how far back does this avoidance of grief and pain go yeah. forever? Uh, yeah. the, the medical and clinical world jumped on her stages of grief, which she meant as a comfort and a kindness and a support to people who are facing the end of their lives. It got twisted into this prescriptive solution. Here are these things that you will go through because we really like certainty. We really like solutions. We really like to be able to look at somebody whose mom just died and say, you're going to be done with this really, really soon. Mm -hmm. Right? So those five feeling states that are common or normal, I guess I would say these days, um, for, for people facing the end of their lives got packaged into five distinct stages that you must go through when you are grieving. You must go through them in order. Um, And the end stage, end stage in air quotes, is acceptance. And by the time you reach acceptance, you are back to normal. Your grief doesn't really bother. You might think of your person fondly every once in a while, but you've moved on with your life. Mm -hmm. Also, sidebar on here, anger is one of those stages. And unlike some of the other kinder, gentler stages. Anger is one that you need to move through really quickly because it's uncomfortable for people. So like you're in the anger phase, you need to get out of that one and move on to acceptance, right? You know, the, one, of the, one, of, one of the many problems with this is that you, as a grieving person, you can't win, right? 
if you're talking to a, a friend or a family member or your neighbor over the fence and you say like, I just can't believe they're gone. And they say, oh, that's the denial phase. You got to get through that one. Or if you have taken off your wedding bands after your partner dies and somebody says, uh, don't you think you're doing that too fast? You really need to like spend some time with, you know, um, accepting it or bargaining or, or whatever, like from the outside, you're going to get so much judgment and so much correction on where people think you are in those fictitious stages, why you are doing things the way that you're doing. And maybe you missed a stage and you didn't do it well enough. So now you're back at the beginning. Like it is such garbage and it's really cruel. If we think about grief as part of love, which I always do because it is, you don't put love in those kinds of stages, mm-hmm. right? Love, my, my favorite phrase that I've written about the stages of grief is that they're a, they're a net thrown over a fog bank, right? It's an attempt to control, define, and corral something that is uncontainable and undefinable. Dr. Ross meant what turned into the five stages of grief as a way to normalize a wholly unnormal, abnormal situation, right? She meant them as a, as a no. dog is voicing her support. Yeah. Here. Yes. <laughs> she meant them as a, as a comfort, not a cage for people. But because of two things, one, because however the medical professions talk about grief trickles down to everybody else, right? This is why the stages of grief are so pervasive because it started with the clinical world and moved out into pop culture and the entertainment world and all of these things. Um, But also that desire from both the professionals and average humans to want to feel like we have some control. Yep. We may not be able to always control loss, but by God's, we will control grief. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other thing is, you know, very often I'm talking to people who want to be supportive of a grieving friend or family member um, and they don't know how, and they feel helpless and stupid, or they've said something that they think is just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that I'm such a jerk. And it's like, it's, it's not your fault if you don't know how to talk about grief it's not your fault if you don't know how to support yourself or somebody else who's going through grief. You have been trained in the incorrect, ineffective ways of doing it. So it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. And it is your responsibility to learn better, kinder, more effective ways to navigate grief for yourself and for others once you know that the old ways are actually causing harm. Mm. If you know anything about me, you know I am a massive creature of comfort. It is one of my top priorities in life to make my surroundings comfortable at all times. So when I found Cozy Earth, I quickly scooped up all of the luxurious bedding and loungewear that I could. It felt very on brand for me, but then I went on a trip with a girlfriend not too long ago where she could not stop commenting on how cute and comfy my pajamas were, which then made me realize they may also be my new favorite travel companion as well. Guys, I am not kidding when I say you will experience unmatched softness and smoothness with all of Cozy Earth's products. The temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew add comfort and a touch of style to any travel ensemble, and their bedding comes in the most adorable totes, making it a super easy gift to give anyone. 
Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code VELVETSEDGE at the checkout for an exclusive 35% off and let them know we sent you when you're at the checkout. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. You know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So speaking of old ways, have you noticed in your practice a difference between how men and women process grief? Because I think so much of the programming for men, you know, back in the day was... No feelings, no emotions, that makes you weak. And so I've witnessed a lot of men in my life really struggle when they're in a place of grief, for instance, or any sort of sadness and pain and just really kind of go to the place of avoidance more than I see women doing. And that's a generalization, obviously, but. Sure, sure. I mean, any any, um, descriptions of gender-based responses are going to be overgeneralizations um, for several reasons, people are all individuals, gender is right. a spectrum, all of those yeah. things. So yeah. having said that, I think we can um, sort of drill into that a little bit. Certainly what I see very often is that um, for men and male identified folks who are grieving, they feel like they have to be strong for the rest of their friend group or the rest of their family. So for for people who have lost a child or lost a baby, the the male male or this is going to get clunky if I have to say this every time, male or male identified. So we're just going to say male or men for shorthand. Um, The, the man feels like he has to be strong for the rest of the family. He has to be the provider, the, you know, that, that knight in shining armor cultural myth runs deep, Mm -hmm. right? Like you have to perform this. You have to be there for other people. You have to be the one that everybody leans on. Right. Parents often feel this for their grieving kids too, but it certainly does show up for 
men very often. And again, we go back to like, what does our cultural storyline say? What does most of our entertainment say, right? Like the, the strong, attractive male is the one who fits a certain body type and who sits, fits a certain um, emotional stoicism, right? They are able to take charge and care for, care for people by being logical and analytical and not letting things get them down. If we see somebody who is showing emotion um, that makes them somehow less masculine, mm-hmm. right? It just, I mean, this is when we talk, you know, I, I talk often about like the intersections of misogyny and grief. And that's also a fascinating topic, but we also look at the ways that toxic masculinity um, and misogyny impacts everybody along the gender spectrum, right? Not allowing men to share their feelings openly means that we miss the relatedness we most long for, right? If you talk to women in, in heterosexual relationships, you talk to women and they're like, I just wish my partner would open up to me more. Okay. The male in that hetero relationship here that we're talking about, the male might be like, I wish I could talk about my feelings, but I need to be strong here, right? Mm -hmm. We are missing each other. And this is true in friend groups and family systems, all of these things, like we're missing what we most want, which is connection and being seen for who we truly are. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge juggernaut and a, you know, multifaceted problem to solve in here about like, how do we kick over toxic masculinity? How do we like make things better for everybody? And I think this, this comes back to what kind of conversations are you having with the people in your life? Right. How do we bring curiosity into our relationships? What that might look like. So, you know, if, if you have uh, you know, a male friend in your life, you can open a conversation and say, you know, I've been thinking a lot about grief and the way that we express it and about how sometimes women feel differently about grief. So like, what, what's grief been like for you in your life? How do you, you know, you want it to sound like you and not like me, but I think you can open conversations about each person's experience of grief in a way that starts to foster real communication and real relatedness, mm. right? The way that we change the, the cultural script for men around grief is starting with being curious about men's experience in our own lives. You don't change the culture usually from some giant top-down edict that happens. It really does happen like any social change, cultural change is person to person in relationships, being curious about each other and being willing to not talk each other out of what you say. Yeah. Right. That's a super big like habit for people. So if I'm talking to somebody in my life and I am curious about gender differences in the grief experience, and I ask a question about what's it like for you as a a man, you know, your dad just died. And um, do you feel like it's different? being a a guy experiencing your dad's loss versus your sister's experience. Mm -hmm. And if they come back with like, yeah, I actually feel this and this. And we come back with like, but you know, you know, you're really strong though. And everybody relies on you, right? Like, what did we just do? We just like cemented that narrative of men need to be strong. Mm -hmm. So really being open and curious and reflecting somebody's reality back to them. That's, that's how we, um, make 
real connections. It's how we build relationships. And it's also how we start to kick over that sort of tired house of gender roles and pain avoidance. Yeah. That's so good about reflecting someone's reality back to them. I also was just thinking if you're also going through grief, how uncomfortable that may be because you also are relying on their strength or their, whatever it is that you project that person to be, if they're not there, then you're actually alone in your grief, which is actually something you talk about on your Instagram. You say, we are alone in our grief. And when I read that, it was the first time anyone has ever said that very clearly or that I've read very clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I believe it to be true. It has been my experience and not in a way of, we don't have support. We don't have great friend groups. We don't even have, you know, like loved ones or any people who care about us, but in the capacity of at the end of the day, if you are grieving, you are in all of those emotions alone. I mean, they're yours to process. They're yours to go through. So can you talk through a little bit about that? Because I don't think that that would be what people want to hear. No, it isn't. And I, 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 often say things people don't want to hear. It's, it's sort of my favorite thing. I want to, I want to piggyback that to what you just said about like, well, basically, well, should I can't open that kind of conversation with my you know male friends or male partner um, because then I won't be able to rely on them. So that's mm-hmm. sort of a black or white thinking right yeah. there. Like yeah. you can either be stoic and strong and quote unquote there for me, or I can allow you to um, share your true emotions with me. And therefore I lose all of your support, mm. right? Like, mm, that's not the only two options right there. If we think that there are only those two options, we're screwed. Yeah. The reality there is that, um, you can actually lean on each other better with more skill, with more satisfaction for each party. If you're having honest conversations about what it's like, you can say things like, um, you know, I, I want to know what it's like for you. And I, and I'm a little bit worried that, um, I won't be able to rely on you if I feel like it's, it's sort of causing you harm, but it's important for us to talk about that. Can we talk about it? Mm -hmm. Right. In the therapy world, we call those process discussions where you're talking about how you talk about something versus, so it would be like um, arguing about who does the dishes correctly or not correctly is a regular argument. And a process, (laughs) I'm looking at my sink right now and a process conversation (laughs) and a process conversation would be, Um, I've noticed that we always get into arguments about who does the dishes better. Can we talk about how we're going to manage our differences? That's a process conversation versus like a, I can't think of the other phrase that I use, but process conversations are really helpful. If you're concerned that you're going to lose support from somebody, if you have an honest conversation about how they're really feeling, think about what goal you want there. Like the goal is that I want to feel really connected inside of this. I want to feel like we can support each other. I want to feel like we have each other's backs. Well, in order to do that, you have to have some really honest, uncomfortable, awkward conversations. Yes. Right. Yeah. Be awkward and do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to come into your, your next question was like, or your next thing that you want to talk about is like, you are on your own in this shit. Mm-hmm. That is just true. And it doesn't matter that you've got an amazing support team or a partner or a therapist or all of these things, like the reality of grief is yours, right? Only, only you know how this loss affects you. Only you have the breadth of history and intimacy that you shared with that person. You can't describe that to someone else. 
You might want to, because you want somebody to be there with you, but you lost a unique person and a unique relationship or a unique being. Some people are, are, you know, listening here, having lost a dog or, a, you know, whatever. And I, I don't want to leave anybody out in the way that we're talking about this. The, the truth is that no matter what or who you've lost, there is an intimate vocabulary there that only you speak, right? No one can join you in that. And what we very often say to somebody going through any kind of loss is you're not alone. That's not really true. And it's not, again, we don't go black or white here. We don't go all this, all that. Like those binaries don't really work for being human. One, all one thing or all the other. It is very, very important to have support inside and alongside whatever you're going through. Companionship is how we survive. Yes. Companionship is really, really important. This is why I talk so much about how to be a better supporter and how to be a better friend and all of these things. And no one is going to take the pain away from you. Your path, your way forward is going to be built by you alone, right? And, and in some ways, I feel like that's a really empowering thing to understand. It means that you don't have to describe every minute filament of everything to somebody else so that you don't feel so lonely, right? There is a core to your own being that nobody else will ever touch, even the person who died. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like holding it in a sacred space in some exactly. ways. I mean, because I was listening, thinking that's another thing that I think I do in, a, in an attempt to avoid the pain of grief, maybe, is to overtalk it, like yeah. overtalk the situation, what happened, uh, if there was a loss, like a person, just every single thing about, I don't know, their life, their death, their, all of it. And it's just like, for me, I don't know if it's like, in relationships, a lot of times it can feel like the case building is going to save me from the pain. Cause if I can just prove that this was, you know, a certain way, it's not going to hurt as bad. And that's just not true either. It's still, yeah. I think it's also a way, a way to justify your own feelings. Oh yeah. That right. Whether you're doing it to yourself or you're doing it to somebody else. And again, like this yeah. is yet another part of that grief averse culture. We judge and shame and harass and dissect um, everything about the human experience of grief, mm -hmm. right? The medical model currently, because it's still fucked up, uh, the medical model right now says that if you are still sad, um, having a hard time re-engaging with life, um, thinking about your person six months after your person died, um, you're doing it wrong. Six months, six That's months. It used to be six weeks and some, some real grassroots right. pushback. I know made it six months. Um, there was a, an article that came out in the New York times, uh, just yesterday that heavily references, uh, so-called complicated grief. And it actually says 10% of people won't be better after six months. I'm like, you fucking bastards right. do better research. No one is better after six months after somebody important to them dies. No one. Right. And so that sort of misinformation, disinformation campaign comes from that problem solution orientation. So it makes sense that when you're having emotions like grief or, you know, big, big emotions like sadness, we do things to defend our own feelings to ourselves and to defend our experience to others. 
whether somebody is being actively judgmental or not, the general sort of soup that we're all swimming in is judgmental against the human experience, right? So I love that question. We, we talked about this uh, earlier where like when you recognize your, what did you say? Case building? I love that. Yeah. When you recognize that you're case building to yourself, the practice there is to interrupt it, go, oh, I'm, I'm case building. Usually I'm case building because I'm having a big emotion that I want to, that I want to manage. What am I feeling right now? Right. Interrupting your go-to mechanisms for managing emotions and asking yourself, what do I actually need right now? What am I feeling? What are some other ways that I might um, support myself when I feel lonely other than um, case building to defend the validity of this feeling? Yes. Right. That, because I think we also can come from our, I, I personally have been taught I'm a big feeler. And mm-hmm. so that is too much. I'm doing air quotes too much for some people. And so grief even comes, you know, happiness comes in big waves, grief comes in big waves. And it's, it's almost gotten to a place where um, I don't want to talk about what I feel a lot of times to people. Cause, because it's embarrassing if you're like, yeah, I'm not over that yet. Or pain of that, you know, like, is there a line where it becomes dangerous to live in our grief or is it just person to person? You have to kind of go through the experience yourself. Mm, that's a good question. Um, first, I would say that if the people around you are uncomfortable with you being yourself, yeah, they're not your people. Yeah. Uh, And I think especially for women, sometimes we've been taught that um, being emotional, any kind, showing any kind of emotion is being too much or is being needy, right? Like think about the fact that calling somebody needy is an insult. Mm -hmm. Humans need each other. Right. Biologically, relationally, emotionally, we need each other to survive. So having needs is not a fucking insult, Mm -hmm. right? having emotions and expressing them in the ways that actually suit you and who you are in the world, that's not wrong. Right. So I I just want to frame that and put that out there that like we very often self-censor based on what we think other people are thinking about who we are fundamentally. Right. If you're not sure and you want to ask people, you can have a process conversation with your best friend and you can say, you know what I noticed? I notice that I stop myself whenever I'm like in a really good mood because I'm concerned that my joy is a little overwhelming for you. Is that true? Yes. Ending that statement with, is that true is really important because it opens conversation. It gives your best friend an opportunity to say, there's a reason you're my best friend because I fucking love how extravagant you are with joy. Right. It lets you actually um, name your concerns and find out sort of feeling out into like, is it actually safe to be me in this situation? Cool. Okay. I'm going to do it. Right. Instead of that narrative that many of us have, which is I'm too much, I'm too much, I'm too much, tone it down. Right. That is something that is taught to very many people that who you are at your core, um, is too much for others. Right. So that's, that's a really great place for self-reflection. And where did I learn this? What does this mean? What happens when I'm believing that? What actions do I take? What relationships do I blunt 
when I'm believing that who I am is too much for everybody, right? That's a whole therapy thing in and of itself. That's a great tack to follow though. Um, and I probably forgot your actual question. Your actual question was, <laughs> no, I gotcha. I gotcha. Your okay, question okay. was like, when is the normal experience of grief? When does it cross over into quote unquote dangerous territory? So uh, just a reminder here that normal, healthy grief hurts. It is messy. It is overwhelming. It is confusing. You, your memory might be impacted. Your sleep is definitely going to be impacted. You might feel more anxious. You might be forgetful. You might not be able to read more than a paragraph at a time. All of those things are normal, healthy grief. They are uncomfortable and they're normal. A lot of the, um, the questions that I get from friends and family members, clinicians is like, okay, but when is it a problem? Yeah. We, re- we really want to know like how much is too much? When do we stop it? Um, really dangerous territory is um, health and safety, right? Somebody is harming themselves or harming others. They are actively suicidal. There are also things like, um, somebody has completely stopped eating or they're, they've lost so much weight that it becomes a medical issue, right? So dangerous territory for me is um, health and safety in the physical danger zone, right? Just because an emotion is messy, just because somebody is crying at the grocery store, just because somebody um, is air quotes, still talking about their person predominantly six months, eight months, a year later, that's not dangerous. That's grief. Right. But we want to look at things like, um, are they taking risks that are endangering themselves or others? Right. Those sorts of things. Now you might have concerns about your person and your concerns are valid. There is a way to phrase those concerns that doesn't shame and silence the person you're talking to. So that might look like, um, um, I'm not really sure how to talk about this, but I have some concerns um, I've noticed that you've lost a lot. Well, I honestly, I wouldn't talk about somebody's weight because that's really fucking touchy. I might say something like, um, I haven't seen or heard from you in seven or eight days. And I, I want to respect your privacy, but I'm also really concerned about your safety. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, I know that losing somebody this close to you can really make you feel like not being part of the world anymore. I want you to know that it's okay to talk to me if you feel like you you just want to stop waking up or you actually are thinking about harming yourself or killing yourself, right? I want you to know that you can talk to me about that. You can voice your concerns in such a way that leave the person feeling supported and seen instead of silenced, mm-hmm. right? And that is going to be working on your own discomfort level or your own comfort level with being uncomfortable and reminding yourself or learning that natural, normal grief is not tidy. It's not. It's not tidy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Right? So have you seen, because I feel like this last year, just during the pandemic, I mean, it was a collective trauma, a collective Mm -hmm. amount of grief happening. And I know I'm thinking specifically amongst my friend group, it was hard sometimes because we all had so many losses happening that 
there wasn't that, that stable person to kind of, you know, that you could like lean on or we all had shit. And so I think you sort of felt like, Oh God, I can't go to this person with that because they don't have the capacity. Um, Do you have any tips for maybe now that we're starting to somewhat seemingly come out of this, how do we adjust? How do we support our people? Especially if we ourselves have gone through a lot of loss and and collective grief this last year. Yeah, it's a great question. So very often when I do interviews, um, people ask me if I think this pandemic has made us better at grief. And my answer is no. Um, It hasn't made us better at grief because I I don't think we've really started talking about what grief really is and what's needed. I mean, this is again, going back to that hideous New York Times article where they're pathologizing grief. Like that is still the medical model, no matter how hard I try to flip that shit over. Um, (laughs) that sort of prevailing cultural belief that you need to get over things very quickly. um, That is a a strongly held belief. So I think what's happened over the last year plus because of the pandemic is because everyone is grieving something. I think what's actually happened is that more of us have understood or have realized that the ways we habitually respond to grief are wrong. Let me see if I can say that a little bit more succinctly, like, human beings don't change behavior until it's personal. Mm. That's not right, not wrong. It is just the way that the human brain works, right? Like you don't take action on something if it doesn't affect you personally. Half the time, you don't even know it's an issue. And the other half of the time, it's like, it's not broken. Why fix it? And then you experience it and you're like, oh, wow. And what's happened, what's happened over during the course of this pandemic is that everybody has lost something from the loss of daily routine to the loss of career, to the loss of a job, to the loss of humans, to the loss of relationships, to the loss of sense of normalcy. Everybody has lost something. And so now it's personal. You sort of reach for those old platitudes and you realize that they're nothing, that they're irrelevant at best and rude and harmful at worst, right? Mm-hmm. So what's happened is this sort of, from my perspective, a, a cultural awakening to the fact that the ways we deal with grief are seriously broken and we need to do something different. I don't know that we have yet started wondering what we can do differently. So, um, and then your, your other question in there about like, we didn't have, I didn't have the bandwidth to support other people because I was dealing with my own stuff. And now that we're sort of coming out of this in a lot of ways, like, how am I going to be there and talk about this and support my friends when I'm still hobbling around with my own stuff and and I'm going to come back to, we name the situation, Mm -hmm. right? You name the awkwardness in the room, you name the difficulty. So that means like going to your friends individually or as a cohort group, if that's the way you roll and saying, you know, this year has been really hard for me. And I know for all of us, and I want to be there for you. And I also need to lean on you. And I don't know how we're going to do this. Like, Maybe there's some way to timeshare emotional support between Mm. us. I love the timeshare approach because it doesn't prioritize any one person's grief or experience than the others. Like, oh, Sally over here got divorced and that's really shitty and they need that support. But this person lost both parents and a grandparent. So we need to like marshal, like there's sort of this sorting hierarchy that happens. And the reality is that within a cohort group, um, everybody needs everybody. So first of all, let's name that. And um, 
I really need support today. Do you have the bandwidth right now to um, let me vent about this? Right. And so what we're talking about here is developing relationships where you can say that, where you can say, I know you're going through some shit right now and I don't want to lean on you. Um, and I really need your ear on X, Y, and Z. Do you have time later today to talk about it? Yeah. That's step one. Step two, however, is super duper important. And this is cultivating relationships where it's okay for your friend to say, I don't have it in me today. Right. It needs to be okay for your friends to say no and not have it be a a big issue. Right. What we're doing here is we're making bids for connection. We're stating what we need. We're asking if that other person is available to meet those needs and making it okay for them to say, no, I cannot. And know that you will be okay and you will go to the next person who might be able to meet those needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are high level relational communication skills. Yeah. Right. That is the bar to aim for the, the goal to aim for. And, um, you know, very often we talk about this in grief, right? It's like, well, the grieving person needs to say what they need and ask for it and like be proactive. We say the same thing to people of color, right? Like you need to tell me why what I said was racist. Like, no, the person at the center of suffering does not need to educate everybody around them. That is not going to happen. It is important to the best of your capacity and ability at the time to articulate what you need from the people closest to you. However, most people don't say what they need in the best of times. So when shit has gone sideways, asking the person in pain to figure out what they need, figure out who might be able to meet that need, ask for what they need, that's that's not going to happen. So the way that you prepare for things like this is to build those kinds of relationships where you can do that on the low level things so that in the event that shit really goes sideways, these skills, these communication skills are not new to you, right? For some people, they have the kind of friendships where you can just be like, life is shit. May I vent to you? And the other person can say, I can listen to your venting at 4 p.m. today. Is that okay? Yeah. Right. But that is through trial and error. That is through trust building. That is through validating and honoring each other's experiences. And you can do that every single day so that that muscle memory gets in there. Like pre-pandemic, I used to say like you you get a chance to practice this, your, your ways of responding to pain. Um, let me start over on that one. Cause I was just about to be super incoherent. Um, <laughs> at least I catch it. Right. But um, mm-hmm. there's this exercise that I talk about called pain spotting, right? We hear pain all the time. We just don't recognize it as pain. So if you want the kind of relationships where you can talk about what's really going on for you, where you can talk about these awkward, messy interpersonal things. You got to practice on small shit. So let's say you are at in line at the coffee shop um, and you ask the barista how their day is going. And they say, not that great. The dog was sick all night. Um, I didn't sleep very well. So I'm kind of out of it. And I got here late. Now the boss is pissed off and somebody called out sick. What we usually say habitually instinctively is at least the sun is out. It's so true. It's so true. And you so just, true. you just missed your daily practice session right? You just missed a chance to practice new communication skills. What's a better, more effective thing to say in that situation is 
that all sounds really shitty. I'm sorry that happened. That's all you got to do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's all you got to do. You just acknowledge what the person said. You reflect it back to them. Acknowledgement is a really powerful relational tool. And if you get in the habit of interrupting your impulse to fix shit or make it better for somebody and instead practice validating and acknowledging what they're going through, that is going to be that much easier when things really go sideways, when somebody's baby dies two days before their due date, or your friend just got into a car accident and they've lost the use of their legs. And now they're like, the fuck am I supposed to do? Right? Practice acknowledging and validating what somebody is going through without trying to talk them out of it. Mm. Practice on the small things so that in the event that bigger things show up, it is not completely new, right? We have a, I hate to use the word opportunity because you know people pair opportunity and crisis all the time. It's garbage, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we do have an opportunity right now because we have had this shared experience of loss over the last year to start having conversations about how are we going to talk about loss moving forward, right? This year has been really hard. I know it was hard for you and it's hard for me. Um, what would feel really like, what do you want to, what do you want to talk about? Like, do you want to talk about how weird it is to be going out into public? Do you want to talk about how, um, how scary it is to think about meeting new people? And have it like, not only if you're going out into the dating world, like not only do you have to talk about safer sex practices, but you also have to talk about your vaccination status. Like, how are we going to talk about this stuff? There's so much stuff to navigate and just getting into the habit of talking about what is actually happening is really the way to start. It's like the Rosetta stone to navigating all of this stuff is like, let's talk about what's actually in the room Mm -hmm. and practice validating and reflecting back rather than fixing things for each other. Yeah. I love that because I think that goes to, you know, the image I get a lot of times with grief and people not knowing how to deal with it is a funeral. And -hmm. you're just like, Oh, I don't know what to say. Everyone's so uncomfortable. And just validating is that to me is what anyone would actually want. It's what I always want when, when I'm in pain, I don't need you to tell me the silver lining. Cause like, sometimes there's not, that's right. Not everything has a silver lining. It just sucks. And like, this is the thing is like, we get so nervous and so bent out of shape of like, Oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Like I have to say this, I have to make it better for them. Like your job as a friend or a support person is not to make people feel better. It is to make them feel heard. Right. The cool thing is that that is a lot easier than making somebody feel better. All you have to do is say this sucks and there's nothing that I can say that makes it better, but I'm here and I love you. Yeah. That is way easier than like, okay, let me make sure that I say exactly the right thing and then remind them that life will be better again and they'll find somebody new and it'll all be okay. Like that is so much more effort and it does not work. It actually makes it worse. It makes it worse. So you have an opportunity here to do, to try less hard for better outcome. So let's do that. Yeah. It just feels weird because we're not used to it. Right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier, um, it's about knowing, you know, when you're in the grief, it's about knowing how to help yourself in those moments, the tools that we have within those moments. So I feel like this is a good time to talk about your book. So the book is called, it's okay not to be okay. Tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah. So it's okay that you're not okay. Um, is a really awesome book. So (laughs) let's just start there. I love that book. And, and because I, study like how humans are like the first part of the book really goes into 
that cultural avoidance of grief. It's like the sociological study of how did we get where we are and how do we move forward? Now, what I very often say, and I say it in the book is if loss just happened for you, if your person just died or you just lost this relationship or like grief is fresh and raw for you, you don't care about the cultural significance of grief, right? I'm an anthropologist and a, and a sociology geek all over the place. But when my partner first died, I didn't care mm-hmm. about the historical roots of pain avoidance. And that I wrote the book in such a way that you can skip the entire first part and get what you need, mm-hmm. right? But if you do want to understand um, how we got where we are and how to get out of it again, um, it's a really cool exploration of all the different ways that that avoidance of being human shows up in different parts of life, culture, um, entertainment world, all of these things. Yeah. And then the other two thirds of the book, um, the middle part is about, you know, what are the tools that you actually need inside grief? How do you distinguish between pain and suffering? How do you reduce suffering um, by communicating your needs, by um, getting help with your anxiety or with um, things that you can do to help yourself sleep or rest better? Like the tools that we have for managing grief are actually much more helpful if you look at them as how do I reduce my suffering mm-hmm. instead of how do I make my grief go away? So that middle part of the book is about the difference between pain and suffering and what tools do we need to, to meet each part of that? Mm-hmm. How do you support yourself inside pain itself? And how do you decrease your suffering where you can? And then the last part of the book is really aimed at friends and family members and supporters who want to do things better. It does go back into like, there's a reason why you don't know how to do this. It's cool. It's not your fault, but here's what you need to do differently. I really wanted that part of the book. I wanted grieving people to be able to hand the book to their best friend or their mother-in-law and say, I know you have the best of intentions. Here's what would be really helpful for me. So like read this section. I wanted, I mean, if you start telling your mother-in-law why your grief is valid and why they're supporting you all wrong, like that's not going to go well for you. No, <laughs> it's not going to go well for you. But <laughs> if you put that information in the mouth of an expert air quotes here, um, I think it makes it easier to, to re-educate, redirect, train the people who really wanted to really want to be of help to you. Um, if you let somebody else describe the problem for you. Right. So that last part of it's okay is really about um, helping your support teams really deliver the love and support that they intend to give because good intentions are a thing. Yeah, absolutely. We want our person to feel loved and supported by what we're saying. The unfortunate thing is that all of the ways that we've been trained to support somebody are wrong. Mm. They're not effective and they're hurting people. They're causing damage. So we need to unlearn all of those things and learn better ways to really deliver that love we intend. So the, that last part of the book is really about undoing what you've been taught and teaching you how to do it better and differently. Um, and it, it also talks about the importance of community. I think we've said this several times together today is um, community is our survival, mm-hmm. right? We survive impossible things together, mm-hmm. right? We It's just the reality of being mammals, right? Like we need each other to survive. There's a, there's a reason why in a lot of, um, in a lot of old traditions, like if you go against the rules of the society, you get excommunicated 
right? And literally one of the rituals there is like the whole community stands in a circle with the person who screwed up in the middle and one by one, each person in the community makes eye contact and turns their back. Like that is powerful. And what this says is that like, you did something so wrong, you are on your own in this. So if we flip that, we say that, um, you know, I'm not sure my analogy is landing here, but like survival relies, depends on connection and the absence of connection is how we get lost, right? You asked me earlier, like what's dangerous inside grief and what's dangerous inside grief is isolation, Mm. right? It is feeling abandoned. That's different than what we talked about a minute ago with, with truly being intimately alone with yourself in your grief, being isolated in your grief is what makes an unbearable situation impossible, mm-hmm. right? So that part of the book is really about acknowledging our needs for companionship and connection and talking about better ways to get that companionship that we need for our own survival. Um, it's Okay has been out for, I think, four, four or so years now. And in the realm of nonfiction books, and then specifically in the realm of grief, uh, I remember when my agent and I were, were shopping for a publishing home for It's Okay, and, and a lot of the big houses said, nobody, uh, grief books don't sell, nobody, nobody reads them. And my clapback was always, that's because grief books suck. Yeah. Right. So much of our literature around grief, it, it, it has been changing lately, but so much of our literature around grief is um, putting a pretty bow on things that don't deserve a pretty bow. It, it puts a high spin gloss on things. Most of our grief literature prioritizes a return to happiness and normalcy. And that is just not the reality for most people. Um, it turns out that telling the blunt truth about grief means something. To people. So, uh, you know, people buy, it's okay by the caseload to deliver to hospitals and hospice organizations. And I just, I love that about the work is that um, telling the truth seems too simple to be of use, but it turns out that telling the truth about grief is actually what people need. And it's really powerful. Well, as so, you were saying that, I was thinking the last thing that someone going through grief needs is shame added on yes. top of that. And so if you are reading a book, that's like, you'll get over this in this amount of time, yet you're not, or, you know, like they're mapping it out and that's not the way your life looks. That would, for me, produce so much shame. So then not only am I sad and grieving and in pain, yeah. I feel terrible about the human that I am because I'm like, well, why can't I bounce back? Like everyone else is bouncing back. Yeah. And that's the, that's the real danger of that cultural narrative of, um, of happiness as the baseline of health. Yeah. Right. That a positive outlook is the only possible outlook and everything else is, you know, you're just being a jerk. It makes normal, healthy people feel like they're failing Mm. on top of the grief that they're actually feeling. So there's shame in there. There's judgment in there. There's the pass fail for the human heart. There's a right way and a wrong way to do this. And if you're not back to normal and happy and having a positive outlook and being grateful for what you've still got, if you're not doing all that performative happiness shit real soon, like two weeks, 10 days, six months, then you're failing. And so then you can internalize that failure and feel like not only am I in pain, but I'm fucking this up. Right. Or you can feel really defensive, right? And start 
trying to defend your grief to yourself and to other people, which we've talked about earlier. Um, so it's either like you collapse in the face of shame and judgment, or you um, roar into defending yourself. And neither of those are places that I want somebody whose life just dissolved. Like I, I just want you to have the luxury to feel whatever you feel and be supported inside it. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's not pile shame onto that. Let's not pile on the need to defend yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. And then to, 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 to go back to um, the tools that you were talking about. So the, um, the book that comes out in May is a, a guided grief journal. It's called how to carry what can't be fixed. It really drills into what are the tools that you can use inside grief itself to help you manage the um, support yourself inside the, the immovable pain that you're feeling. And also what are the tools that you can use to help decrease your suffering, right? So it builds on some of the exercises that are in it's okay. There's um, some guided writing prompts. I am super, super picky about writing prompts as they relate to grief, because so often um, they feel really sort of boring to me. Like tell us about the funeral. Like eh, that's not really how I roll. Um, So the writing prompts in, in this guided journal are, are a little bit deeper, a lot more, a lot deeper uh, than those sort of standard tell us about the funeral prompts and it's it's not a journal to solve grief for you because that is not how i work it is a a place for you to tell the whole truth about your grief whatever that looks like for you and there are also you know echoing sort of the shape of it's okay there are also there's also a whole section of um resources that you can print out or tear out of the book and photocopy so that you can hand resources to uh, your nosy neighbor who really wants to be helpful or your best <laughs> friend, or your best friend who really truly wants to show up for you and they right. don't know how. So all of these um, educate your friends and family resources are in the journal as well. Um, because again, like when your life just dissolved, I don't want you having to do the work to educate the people around you. That is my job right? That's my job and my team's job to make things easier for grieving people by educating the world around them so that all you have to do is fall apart. Well, I saw that there was a link in the, in your bio on your Instagram to that, um, the grief journal, but I'm also going to link both of those in the description of this podcast so that you guys can easily find them. Thank you so much. I just love the truth about pain. I, I, I like people to just speak openly so that again, to me, that feels connecting, you know, that connects me with other humans to hear about their truth and just with the walk, not being so pretty and perfect. You know, I really hope that we can let some of those guards down after a year, like we've had. (laughs) Exactly. And that like telling the truth is a relief. Yeah. Right. It's it's actually, it's an awkward and gentle act. And to loop back to where we started, right. Like you were talking about, I don't, I'm going to analyze this so that I never feel this again. And, and really like, that's not the way forward. The way forward is I'm going to feel this in different ways again and again and again. And that is part of loving the world. That is part of being human in this world. It will happen again. Mm -hmm. And what do I need to know now to support myself when grief comes back again, because it will. Right. Yeah. That one, I'm going to have to sit with that one for a minute. Yeah. It's hard. It's a hard one. I really do. I really feel like, but but it's, it's hitting me. It's resonating for sure. Megan, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Yeah. You're welcome. 
Thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks for listening to the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson, where we believe everyone has a little velvet and a little edge. Subscribe for more conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. Search Velvet's Edge wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.